The following program is brought to you with support from the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, looking forward to a debate in Peru that could affect the world's environment. And also, coming down to the wire for the presidential race in Uruguay. But first, U.S. President Barack Obama takes a stand on immigration that resonates throughout the hemisphere. Gabriela Canchola is here with that story and more in our weekly review of news from around Latin America. U.S. President Obama announced he will execute orders to exempt as many as 5 million unauthorized immigrants from deportation. He used a nationwide address to take on his critics in the U.S. Congress who say he is overstepping his authority. And to those members of Congress who question my authority to make our immigration system work better or question the wisdom of me acting where Congress has failed, I have one answer. Pass a bill. Under Obama's plan, various groups of undocumented immigrants can apply to be exempted from deportation for up to three years. Those groups include those in the United States for more than five years, those who have children who are citizens, and those who pass a background check, register, and pay taxes. Obama also promised to prioritize the deportation of unauthorized immigrants with criminal records. Honduras is in mourning after the disappearance and murder of the reigning Miss Honduras, 19-year-old Maria Alvarado. She had been set to travel to London this week for the start of the Miss World competition, but she had gone missing last week, along with her sister, Sofia. After a nationwide search, police found the women's bodies in a shallow grave by a river. Police say Sofia's boyfriend confessed to murdering the women. He shot Sofia because she had danced with another man at a party and also killed her sister, who witnessed the crime. The killings reignited debate over insecurity in Honduras, the country with the world's highest murder rate. The Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, is ready to release a high-ranking military hostage on certain conditions. The rebels kidnapped Colombian Army General Ruben Dario Alzate as he was traveling rebel territory out of uniform and without bodyguards. Colombia's government suspended peace talks with the rebels after the kidnapping. Cuban and Norwegian officials have been acting as mediators between the Colombian government and the rebels to arrange a hostage release. A judge in Brazil sentenced a trio for eating and selling the flesh of women they murdered. Prosecutors say the trio made pastries from the flesh and sold them to neighbors. A judge sentenced Jorge Beltrao Negromonte, his wife Isabel Cristina Pires, and his mistress Bruna Cristina Alviera da Silva to at least 20 years in prison. The trio admitted to murdering at least three women and eating their flesh. However, they deny selling pastries made of the flesh. The cannibals confessed to luring their victims to their house by promising them jobs as nannies. For Latin Pulse, this is Gabriela Canchola. Thanks, Gabriela. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Mexico. 
Mexico recently moved into third all-time on our audience list behind our listening groups in the U.S. and Brazil. So we say, mil gracias. And now we look ahead to the Global Climate Conference organized by the United Nations that will be hosted by Peru at the beginning of December. The news last week that the world's two biggest polluters, the United States and China, are willing to set limits on pollution came as a major breakthrough for those seeking changes in environmental laws. That announcement gave hope to some that the world's governments can reach a global agreement on greenhouse gas emissions by next year and a conference set for Paris. And it raises the stakes for negotiations at this year's UN Climate Conference in Peru, which will set the stage for the Paris talks. We turn to Andrew Miller of Amazon Watch for his analysis of the upcoming UN conference. We spoke to Miller via Skype from Washington, D.C. As hopefully the listenership knows, every year the the UN, um, what's called the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is uh, something that came out of out of Rio, uh, the Rio Earth Summit back in um, 1992. Um, you know, every year they have a gathering, and so this year in Lima is what's called COP20, the Conference of Parties, the 20th gathering that's happened. Uh, and and we're excited because it's the first time that it's actually being hosted in what we consider an Amazonian country. Uh, it's been in South America before, but this is the first time. Um, and and essentially, uh, the the meeting is is sort of a lead up to what's you referenced Paris to COP21 in December of 2015, when a new climate, a new global climate treaty is supposed to be finalized. Uh, but this meeting in Lima is certainly very important because the draft text for that meeting is, is supposed to come together uh, in early December of this year. In terms of uh, you know, what happened recently, the announcement that was made by China and the US, uh, that's actually very directly related to what's happening in the, the context of these UN climate talks, uh, because one of the, the actions that countries around the world are supposed to take is they're supposed to issue what are called intended nationally determined contributions. So essentially, it's like what every country is going to offer up to the global climate negotiations in terms of how they're going to hopefully reduce emissions of greenhouse gas, uh, well, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, and take other actions um, to to deal with climate change. Um, so effectively, the U.S. and China have have sort of put that on the table, and the hope is that 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 will also um, catalyze other countries to do so. Not necessarily now, but between now and March of this coming year. Um, so, so we'll see. We'll see what other countries are willing to do. I think it's understood that the the goals that the U.S. and China put forward are um, they're they're it's they're positive in some regard, but they're woefully inadequate when we think about what needs to happen to deal with climate change. Um, and that's kind of a real concern that we have about these these national targets. Those are sort of a, a representation of the kind of political reality in every country. Um, but then we also have a physics reality around climate change. And, um, you know, at least to date, what each country has said they're willing to do doesn't come anywhere near close enough um, to addressing climate change as scientists are saying we need to do. So we've set a fairly low bar is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, essentially, and obviously the the political context in the United States is is quite difficult um, for for you know President Obama um, with the recent elections. Um, you know, I think there's a number of key things that we're going to be seeing here in the United States 
uh, right now, I mean, essentially this week or in the coming weeks around that have huge repercussions around climate change. You know, I mean, in terms of the, the Chinese um, and thinking about Latin America and thinking about the, the, the Amazon in particular, where, of course, Amazon Watch works, uh, you know, what we're seeing of, is a trend that's happening not just in Latin America but around the world in, in terms of increased Chinese investments, massive you know, upscaling of Chinese investments in the region um, in recent years. And a lot of that is geared towards natural resource extraction, you know, to fuel the growing Chinese economy, um, you know, to fuel increasing energy use in China. And so we see cases where uh, massive investment, billions and billions of dollars in the region, I mean, in Peru, uh, China just purchased Petrobras's assets. They just um, finalized a $2.6 billion deal in, in Peru to buy oil um, infrastructure. And then in Ecuador, China's made billions of dollars in loans to Ecuador, which essentially are geared to be paid back in oil. Um, and, and with the price of oil actually dropping, what that, the implication is that Ecuador has to drill more oil in order to pay back the 10 or $12 billion in, in loans that have been made by China. So that's, you know, those are some indicators on the ground that are of, of huge concern to Amazon Watch and to many others. For those who don't track the oil markets so closely, we should note that Petrobras is the state oil company of Brazil. And um, one of the criticisms that we've seen at these UN meetings is often the views of groups like yours are not being as well represented, if represented at all, at the high levels of these particular meetings. I take it that your group goes to Lima to, to try to get your voice heard. What are your thoughts about how there's a bit of a disconnect in these UN meetings? Well, I mean, there's a lot that happens and there's a lot that will happen in Lima. There's the official um, UN meeting that's going on. It's happening in a military base. So the physical access for civil society is tremendously limited. Um, there's a process through which organizations can become accredited with the UN climate process. Amazon Watch is accredited. Uh, and then you nominate people to participate uh, this year, they, they reduced, actually, the, the actual number of civil society observers. It's about 1,800 people. Um, so there's a very tight, you know, Amazon Watch, we nominated 17 people. We got four spaces. Um, it's very difficult to, to physically get in, and, and actual participation is very limited. Um, you know, there's a lot else that goes on, of course. There's a, there are side events. There's a People's Climate Summit that will be happening. Um, there's a big... Uh, grassroots march that will be happening on Wednesday, December 10th, International Human Rights Day. Uh, you know, so I think that's going to be a real expression of concern from social movements, from civil society groups, etc. But yeah, a lot of that, it, it's hard to get that heard on the inside. There's ways to try to do that. But again, the, the access is very limited. At the same time, you know, corporate access is, is, is fairly good at these kinds of events. Corporations um, sponsor different types of events there and have a lot of access to the government negotiators. I mean, I think it's a it's a microcosm of of the you know the the kind of interplay between governments, corporations, and and civil society, and and sometimes you know frankly corporate interests have much better access because they're financing the processes, they're financing um, the politicians themselves in different ways. So um, you know so we'll do our best, but you know it's certainly. Um, you know, there's 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 a certain segment of civil society that's kind of given up on the UN climate process. Um, just you know, doesn't believe that there's any way in which the UN is going to is going to move fast enough to deal with 
you know, essentially this, this massive onslaught of, of issues that are going to be happening around climate change. On the other hand, you know, it's also really the only forum or one of the only forums for a lot of the smaller governments. And so, you know, look at the, you know, the island nations, the small island nations that are some of which are going to essentially disappear because of rising sea levels. Um, you know, the UN is the forum in which they can really articulate themselves and, and have a say. And it's kind of one country, one vote. Obviously, the, the Security Council, uh, you know, weighs very heavily on that. The permanent members of the Security Council have, you know, kind of outsized power um, in the context of the UN. But it's still an important venue. Um, for for smaller countries that are going to you know be massively affected by climate change, of course everyone's going to be affected by climate change, um, but it's generally understood that it's the poorer countries often and poorer peoples um, who've contributed the least to climate change, but they're also the ones who are the the most quickly affected, and so there's a huge a aspect of injustice um, to to what's happening around climate. You know, we still haven't given up entirely on the UN process, but recognize the limitations at the same time. You mentioned some concerns for Latin America in the context of the environmental discussion. Do you think that there will be any specific topics that are raised at this particular meeting with a particular aim at improving the environment in Latin America? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the environmental issues in Latin America are ones that play themselves out all around the world um, in different ways. I mean, obviously, every region has its, has its peculiarities. But, um, you know, I mean, a lot of the same issues around climate change, around natural resource extraction, around what the impact of that is on uh, local communities. Um, you know, so these are some of the issues that are going to play themselves out, um, you know, hopefully to some degree on the inside, mostly more on the outside. You know, one issue amongst many um, that's very pertinent in Peru and, and around the world is the question of the way in which people, grassroots environmental activists are often criminalized, and are often attacked directly for the work that they're doing. Um, you know, we just there's actually a case in Peru right now, which very directly relates to the climate conversations around four Ashanika uh, indigenous leaders that were killed, but um, including Edwin Chota, who is a, a fairly well-known Ashanika leader. They were um, they were men who were were working to have their lands formally titled as a as a means of protecting it from from outside interlopers and in particular illegal loggers. And so you have this dynamic, uh, you know, and it's very emblematic of what's happening in Peru in many places where local activists are very much trying to do what they can to stem the tide of, of environmentally destructive activities like illegal logging, um, which contributes to deforestation, which contributes to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you know, so they're doing their best at a local level, but they're not really getting the support that they need from central governments. In this case, the government wasn't responding to reiterated attempts to, to title their lands. Uh, and then they're, you know, then they're going up against, in that case, illegal loggers who eventually resorted to violence and, and killed four leaders. You know, that's something that you know, wouldn't officially be discussed at the UN climate talks, but it's, very, it's a very important topic nonetheless for how we collectively address these issues. These talks do put a focus on Lima and Peru, and you've mentioned some of the reasons that there should be that focus. Are there other issues, other, other examples of things going on in Peru that will be discussed because <clears throat> of this spotlight? There was a hope that by hosting the, the climate summit, Peru would be in the spotlight and on some level would be forced 
to at the very least put forward some sort of an Im image of, of trying to make improvements in these areas or some you know, commitments around climate. Um, <clears throat> but unfortunately, what we've actually seen improve over the course of the year has in many ways been the opposite of that. Um, the, the Peruvian economy has stagnated to some degree, and uh, the government has responded by issuing a series of, of new rules and laws that essentially weaken um, oversight of corporations and you know attempt to what they it's you know they talk about the reactivation packages um, in Peru that are really geared towards investment um, you know ostensibly you know it's kind of the, the the implicit understanding is that somehow environmental regulations are holding back the Peruvian economy. And that's unfortunately a dynamic that we see not just in Peru, but all around the world, this kind of tension, this ostensible tension between, uh, yeah, between economic growth and, um, you know, environmental protection. Thank you so much. Andrew Miller of Amazon Watch. Join us today on Latin Pulse via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. This is Tom Scared for the Borgen Project. Each year, nearly two million children die from preventable diseases. Each day, 30,000 people die from hunger. 500 each hour are children. The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Voters in Uruguay will pick a new president at the end of the month. We've been following the presidential race this fall, and the country's former president, Tabari Vasquez, of the Broad Front, or the Frente Amplio, almost won in the first round, missing an all-out victory by a percentage point. He faces conservative challenger Luis Alberto Lacachepo of the National Party. We spoke to Chris Sabatini, the editor-in-chief of America's Quarterly, about the race. Sabatini is also the Senior Director of Policy for the America Society and Council of the Americas. We reached him via Skype from his office in New York City. All of Uruguayan politics have to be discussed in the concept of that it's a very consensual society and politics. It is, it's always been, um, you know, the, the military government of the 70s and 80s was somewhat of a blip in Uruguay's history. And you know, if whoever would win, uh, again, it looks like it's going to be Tabaré Vázquez, clearly, but will really be, if it were the, even the opposing uh, candidate, it would be really just a, a gentle shift. To give one example, um, one of the most controversial pieces of legislation that the uh, Frente Amplio government passed in the last term, the last five years term under Mojica, was to not just legalize marijuana, but to actually set the uh, state up as a seller of marijuana in pharm pharmacies. Um, and while the, he, the president bucked public opinion in doing that, um, Lacalle Po, who is the opposition uh, candidate right now, has said that even if he wins, he may roll back the state's role as the vendor of pot, but he's not going to um, probably delegalize or recriminalize uh, marijuana. So it's, it, these are these are differences of degrees more than more than anything else. But what 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 is driving the the, the election? I think the the differences between the two candidates, Tavari Vasquez uh, and, and La Calle Po, um, uh, primarily is, is sort of a, a certain amount of, of, of exhaustion with the, the Frente Amplio. It's been in power for 10 years. Uh, a lot of the voters that are expressing their support for La Calle Po are talking about the need for a change. Um, 
you also see actually in a six percent of the voters according to polls are going to vote uh, in blank or sort of spoil their ballots. It's a little bit of a protest vote, um, not even so much against uh, the Fanatic Amplio, but I think about uh, you know the the uh, National Party, which is a you know obviously a very a long-standing party in Colorado politics. So the failure of renewal, um, and I think there is a certain amount of an age issue here. Um, you know, Mujica is in his seventies. Uh, Tabari Vasquez is in his seventies. I think you know this is going to be a challenge also for the Frente Amplio. Um, in the next election, is is how will it renew its leadership? They're basically the the ten years have revolved around two presidents, Tabare Vasquez, Mujica, and Tabare Vasquez again. You know how will it sort of put forward a fresh face um, in, in the next go around? And I think that's a little bit of that. The other issue that came up is the question of security. And again, you have to understand all of this in Uruguay's context. It's not we're not looking at a security situation akin to say Venezuela. Or Brazil and the Rio and the favelas in Rio, it, it's really quite uh, light compared to other regions. But it was a big issue, and um, but even in that case, they had a referendum uh, uh, issue on the ballot in October 26th in the first round, but whether to lower the age uh, in which uh, juveniles could be tried as adults, it was sort of a get tough measure, and that lost. So even you know again, Uruguay is it's it's always a, a little more moderate. A little more modest and, and a little more um, soft in the way it deals with these things, and that's I think the way to understand even this election. It's going to be neck and neck, but you know even though the, the country is going to be divided pretty much, look, taking going out on a limb and taking a rough guess, probably like 52 to say 35 in the final vote, uh, 52 percent to 35 percent. You know this is not a deeply riven country. We're not looking at Brazil, say, between Aceo Neves and the winner, Dilma Rousseff, or Venezuela between Maduro and Capriles. And, and those were generationally close elections that we had not seen in both of those countries for a very long time. Yes. Uh, and, and, and that brings up the, the case of um, Luis Lacachepeau. He is someone who is running in this election in his 40s, I believe, and um, is he then positioning himself for the next election? He very much can. There is this issue, too. I mean, he comes from a very um, landed, well-known political family. So, yes, he's a fresh face, but he's not a fresh leader in some ways. I mean, his, his, his uh, uh, genealogical tree is, is very deeply rooted in Uruguayan politics. But clearly, this is a man with a long-term uh, political uh, agenda, a long-term political future. And as I say, it will be interesting to see over the next five years how the Frente Amplio sort of uh, tries to reposition itself um, to be able to cultivate a new a new set of leaders beyond uh, Mujica and Tabare Vasquez. When he was doing a bit better in the polls, you had written a piece for U.S. News and World Report that said maybe after these two terms of the Frente Amplio, Uruguay is, is ready for a mild course correction. What would be part of that course correction if, for some reason, he managed to land the, an upset? Um, I think, first of all, um, you know, again, this is all just a matter of minor degrees. So I think the first thing is uh, Uruguay has been, even under the Frente Amplio, the center-left Frente Amplio, it has been increasingly getting closer to the United States. Um, it's negotiated uh, a very close trade agreements, not a free trade agreement, but trade agreements and bilateral treaties. Um, you know, you had the weird spectacle of, of Pepe Mujica, a former leftist guerrilla, who approved one of the most uh, forward-leaning marijuana laws, pushed for it in his country, uh, got a White House visit with President Obama. Um, so they've been very pro-United States. And, and that stems from two things. First, I think the, the innate 
um, uh, sort of central, uh, objective, moderate view of, of Uruguay and realizing that it's sort of stuck between two giants, Argentina and Brazil, and second, the need to sort of look for alternatives beyond Mercosur. So what would have a course correction under La Calle Po meant? I think we look for a deepening of that relationship with the United States, um, and perhaps even a breaking of, of the ties uh, between Uruguay and Mercosur, which is interesting because Uruguay, Montevideo, is, is the house or the home of the Mercosur um, offices. But they've been increasingly dissatisfied with their relationship in Mercosur, first because they're wedged between the two giant neighbors, also because of spats with Argentina over a paper pulp uh, uh, plant that was placed on the Rio de la Plata. So they're not, you know, they're not, they're not terribly satisfied. I think they're also looking for other alternatives. And that, that would have been, I think, I think a Lacayo Po government would have been a little more abrupt in breaking that, that relationship with its two neighbors. Let's talk a little bit about marijuana policy. And I know that sounds interesting to most folks who don't talk about marijuana policy, but <laughs> Some would say that, that Uruguay has not done a very good job of selling this to the general public. It's not as popular as some would believe. And that they haven't gone as far as a Colorado, for instance, of, of actually getting the product to the market, that that's been very slow. Well, you know, the difference is, is that it is in, in Uruguay, the state is the seller, whereas in Colorado, it is a... Um, you know, basically the state just allows it to happen and it's set up under a market in which private uh, sellers and growers market um, in storefronts. So the insertion of the state in this process in Uruguay has slowed it down considerably. Um, but they also allow for, um, you know, a fair amount of uh, cultivation of marijuana plants by individuals, um, which is different than, than Colorado and Washington. But, you know, the, probably the best comparison is between Uruguay and Washington state, which also has been very slow off the mark in getting marijuana to market. And that's, in that case, it's because they're trying to figure out the nuances of how to regulate it. Whereas I think Colorado's strategy was more to sort of open up the floodgates, let a number of vendors open up stores, and now they're wrestling with issues of edibles, you know, how, how to market or how to restrict and, and regulate, uh, you know, edible marijuana that is, you know, could be confused with candy or could find its way into the wrong hands. Since we're talking about um, health, Tabari Vasquez is known for his uh, anti-tobacco laws. Are we going to see more initiatives against tobacco in a new Vasquez administration? Or are there other health issues that you think may come to the fore? Well, you know, first, he's, he's a practicing oncologist. Uh, he actually, even when he was president, he still visited a clinic and continued his practice. So he's very committed to health care. Um, you know, that's a tough call. I mean, there's also the issue of, of how will you regulate marijuana so that it doesn't, because it's largely smoked, has the same uh, deleterious effect on, on pulmonary uh, capacity as, as uh, tobacco smoke. I don't know what his position on that, but I think it's a fair question how he will, you know, reconcile his anti-tobacco position with his party's uh, more lenient uh, marijuana position. Um, so who knows? I think the other thing that's interesting is, you know, like say, uh, uh, Mayor Bloomberg and others, is, you know, Ken Tabaré Vasquez as a doctor, uh, really a leader in many ways, preceded uh, Bloomberg and others in many ways of pushing for uh, tobacco legislation and pushing hard, whether he will sort of become a leader on this issue and world health issues overall, whether it's um, obesity and junk food or, or other sorts of matters, which are really coming to the fore now. We're seeing a lot of push 
for you know more healthy standards for uh, food, uh, restrictions on junk food, um, and, and it'll be interesting to see if he really parlays his his experience, his knowledge, and his passion for health into uh, doing other things beyond just Uruguay uh, in the world community. Thank you so much, Chris Sabatini, the editor in chief of America's Quarterly, and the senior director of policy for America Society Council of the Americas. Our guest today on Latin Pulse via Skype from New York. Thank you, Rick. And now a programming note. Latin Pulse will not be online next week due to the Thanksgiving holiday in the United States. We'll return to our regular weekly schedule on Friday, December the 5th. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, producer Jim Singer and associate producer Gabriela Canchola. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support from Webster University and through the support of Link TV. This program is copyright 2014, Los Rocas Productions. The preceding program was brought to you with the support of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University.